0: Hey, true crime pod lovers. I'm Kayla.
1: And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom.
0: And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome back to our show. I am seriously so grateful that you even click on us and that you are listening to us tell you these stories. It is amazing and I've been super overwhelmed with gratitude. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm guessing you click on our show because you love hearing about true crime cases that you may have never heard of. I hope you feel right at home with our casual storytelling as a mother and daughter duo. We love being with you each week and telling you these stories, bringing you information that can help you stay aware, and sharing organizations with you that are important to get involved with. We created True Crime Exposed to not only expose the worst people that live right around us, but most of all to give each victim's story exposure. Because you know we support the life of anyone who was taken from us unjustly. And by sharing these stories, we are these victims' advocates. We love being a voice for those that no longer have one and for getting their stories to you. Each case we share with you is so important to us. Are you ready for today's case? So hopefully I don't sound too bad because I'm like sick in my throat. Ugh. Yeah, it's been kind of gecky. So with the Gabby Petito story that broke a couple weeks ago, there has been a huge push to share stories of underreported missing people as well. Have you seen that?
1: Yes, I've seen it. I It, it is interesting to see how the country has like been so involved with the Gabby Petito case.
0: Right. And I, I mean, I agree with everybody that it is super important to share those underreported stories as well.
1: Yeah, I saw that Utah has like, there's number seven in missing people.
0: Like, really? I didn't see come, that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty high. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. I
1: saw that on the news, so I don't have any like resources or anything, but.
0: But still, wow. And every case deserves as much attention and and media, as Gabby's case had.
1: Yeah, I, I agree.
0: Yeah. And what I think captivated me about Gabby's case was, first, it was going on right by us in the Grand Tetons, but then also the fact that her boyfriend just had the audacity to take her fan and drive himself all the way home without without her, like, no one would notice. But, of course, the public did notice, and we all went crazy over it, and Gabby's case deserved that attention and that outrage, just like every single missing and murdered person on this earth deserves that attention on their case. But like we just said, unfortunately, there are people who don't get this media coverage that don't get like the public outrage, even though they deserve it just as much as anyone else. Yeah,
1: it's... I wish they would get more. Me too. I mean, I I think because of the public, they found Gabby quickly.
0: I think so too, because they may not have been searching yet. They may not have... They for sure wouldn't have had the tips that they had if not everybody knew what was going on. Like, they knew where the van last was nearby where her body was found because some YouTuber saw like on TikTok that she was missing and realized she had a video of that ban. Yeah. So, and that's only spread through, you know, the public spreading that story so far and wide.
1: Exactly. I know I had wondered cause she was, you know, posted a bit on Instagram and YouTube and stuff. So I'd wondered if that had made her case, um, like more interesting to the public.
0: But. Yeah. Cause she was like documenting their trip. Yeah so everyone could really, like, really be those, like, at-home detectives looking things up. (laughs) Yep. So, and, you know, them calling for a call-out on missing cases that are underreported reminded me of... One story that we already covered, remember our second episode, The Disappearance of Michael Darnell Bell Jr., Yeah, that young black man who went missing 10 years ago in California, his case makes no sense to me. It's one that I'm obsessed with. I'm always wondering, like, what happened to you? Yet no one else is talking about him. No one's outraged that his case wasn't spread far and wide. And these stories are important for us to share with you, but... We are only two people, and in order to spread underreported stories like these, we also need the people listening to care about them as well. So we need you to not just listen to this for entertainment, but to actively participate in sharing these stories and stories of other people that are missing. So if you see a missing person flyer online, share it. If you listen to a story about a missing person, share it talk about it, and overall just care about it. So today I'm going to share with you a few stories. Stories about taking steps in the right direction for missing and murdered Indigenous women and a story about a missing woman that has no coverage, who needs her picture and her name spread far and wide. Did you know that in 2019, more than 5,590 Native American women were reported missing and that murder is the third leading cause of death for American Indian and Alaska Native women? Which that's really high that that's the third leading cause of death for them.
1: I know. Always when we talk about it, this reminds me of that Wind River show.
0: I know. I brought that up later in this episode, too. (laughs) That one is a good show and Uh, I, i researched it and it says like the story is more fictional but inspired by like real cases that don't get coverage yeah that movie's so good
1: i did oh what podcast was i listening to i think it was a dateline episode they were talking about a girl that went missing as well that was an indigenous and her aunt was fighting for her
0: No, And
1: it it was just hard for her to work with, like, the um, reservation police and stuff.
0: Yeah. And, like, they don't get as many resources. And it's just sad that there's so many of them, like, going missing and being murdered. But yet they're not really being talked about that often. So, in 2020, there were two acts that were signed into law to help address the the horrific statistics about missing and murdered indigenous women in the united states one of them was savannah's act and it was first introduced in 2017 by senator heidi heitkamp and it was passed in 2020 it aims to increase the communication between federal state tribal and local law enforcement agencies It also improves tribal access to information and resources so that they can effectively respond to these missing and murdered cases. And with this, there was another act also passed. It's called the Non-Invisible Act, which was introduced in 2019 and also passed in 2020. And the intent of this act is to, quote, Increase intergovernmental coordination to identify and combat violent crime within Indian lands and of Indians. End quote. Now, who is Savannah? The one that Savannah's Act is named after. This is Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, who was 22 years old at the time that she went missing, and she was a member of the Spirit Lake Tribe in North Dakota. She was born in Belcourt, North Dakota on August 9th, 1995, which makes her only two days older than me. She moved in 2005 to the Spirit Lake Reservation that is on Devil's Lake, and she graduated from Warwick High School in 2013. One year later, in 2014, she had earned her CNA, and she was stoked to start working at Eventide Nursing Home. And she decided a couple years later to move to Fargo, North Dakota, and she was able to transfer her job to an Eventide there. So she would still be working for the same company. She loved her job caring for the elderly.
1: That's crazy because the dateline that I watched was The Secrets of Spirit Lake.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Do you think it was about this girl or a different one? Um, no, they found the girl. This girl was found too. This oh. th- I'm. This story is about, like, how Savannah's act came into play.
1: Yeah, no, the girl on Spirit Lake was Carla Yellowbird. Oh, okay. But it sounds like it's the same area.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, if their missing and murdered rate is so high, I guess it's not surprising that, like, multiple people from the same reservation could go missing or be murdered. Yeah. Which is sad. Savannah had started dating Ashton Matheny. Matheny. I'm not very good at names all the time, but hopefully I'm saying that in one of the right ways. Ashton Matheny. And she started dating him her freshman year. And he tagged along with her to Fargo. And then shortly after the move, the couple actually found out that Savannah was pregnant. They were young, but they had been together for years. They were in love and they were overcome with joy. Savannah cherished family and her heart was full that she was about to start her own. Her boyfriend Ashton was also of native descent and was a member of the Spirit Lake tribe. Savannah couldn't wait to immerse their baby into their culture and tribe. This part of her life was super important to her. In 2017 she was still in Fargo and Savannah was temporarily living with her parents in a basement apartment of an apartment complex. They shared this apartment with her and her younger brother and on August 19th 2017 Savannah's upstairs neighbor Brooke Cruz knocks on the family door and when Savannah answers Brooke is like hey I'm hemming a dress and I need someone to model it for me while I work on it and do some finishing touches. I'll pay you $20 if you want to come up to my apartment and help me out. Savannah's thinking to herself, okay, I guess I can go try on a dress real quick and get 20 bucks out of it. And with that, she follows Brooke as she walks up to the third floor apartment that Brooke shares with her boyfriend, William. Savannah texts her mom on her way up, Noberta, that she's headed upstairs to apartment number five to help their neighbor for just a minute. And after her mom receives this text, time starts passing. First, an hour goes by and then more. And when Savannah doesn't return home for hours, Noberta decides, "Okay, enough time has passed and she was going to go get Savannah from the neighbor's. So she walks up to the third floor and she starts knocking on the door of the apartment. And there is no answer for a minute. And then she starts banging on the door until Brooke finally answers. Noberta's like, OK, so Savannah needs to come home right now. And Brooke looks at her a little confused and is like, um, I don't know what you're talking about. Savannah already left. Noberta glances back to the parking lot to confirm that she had seen Savannah's car on her way up to Brooke's apartment, and immediately her heart sinks, because there it is, sitting there just as it was earlier that morning, and as she walks back to her own apartment, she's just sort of filling up with worry and anger. What the hell was Brooke talking about? Savannah did not leave this apartment complex. Her car is sitting right there. She's eight months pregnant with swollen feet. There's no way she took off on foot. And why would Savannah order a pizza right before going up to Brooke's apartment, just to leave afterwards while the pizza sits at home untouched? None of this was making sense. While thoughts are just swirling through Noberta's mind, she frantically tells the rest of her family what is going on. The family didn't trust their upstairs neighbors. They were constantly having volatile fights that you could hear throughout the entire complex. At one point, William had even been jailed after attacking Brooke. And just a few weeks earlier, Brooke had come down to the family's apartment and asked Savannah to smoke weed with her. And obviously, Savannah declines because she's like, "Um, I'm pregnant, so no thank you. (laughs) And all of this together starts to make Savannah's family super concerned when she never returns home. So very soon after the family discovers that Savannah was no longer in the apartment upstairs... They called the Fargo Police Department at 4.30 p.m. and the search was on. Police come to the complex and had searched the upstairs apartment multiple times in the first few days of the investigation, but they found nothing unusual. They discovered that Brooke Cruz lived in that apartment with her boyfriend, William Hohen. And the couple willingly lets police inside and tells them that Savannah left after trying on the dress and getting her $20. How were they supposed to know where she went next? The entire investigation team was stumped in those first few days. Like, how did she disappear from the time she walked out of this apartment to the time she would have walked back into her own home? Her car was there. She was eight months pregnant she could not have gotten far on foot. Did someone pick her up outside of the apartment? So police talk with Savannah's boyfriend Ashton. And he says that they were texting all day, but he never saw her. All at once, her text just stopped coming and now no one can get a hold of her.
1: I feel like the family um, called the police quickly.
0: Yeah, they did. I, they were like 100% expecting her home. Soon. You know, she said she was just going up to the neighbors for a minute. I think the family immediately suspected the neighbors. Yeah. And then something happened that the investigators never expected. On the fifth day of their search, they returned to Brooke and William's apartment. Remember, they hadn't found anything in their multiple searches in the days before, but for some reason, they just kept being drawn back to that apartment. Something didn't feel right when they were inside there. I mean, they weren't finding anything, but they just felt in their gut to keep on searching. And while they started combing through the apartment yet again... One investigator catches a flicker of movement out of the corner of his eye. So he walks over to the bed and he sees something under the blanket. And it was a baby. Mm. And Brooke and William didn't have a baby.
1: Like a brand newborn baby?
0: A newborn baby. Oh my gosh. So immediately Brooke and William are both arrested. Where had this baby come from? Obviously, something was very ominous about the situation. When a pregnant woman is last known to be in your apartment and five days later, the police discover a newborn baby in that same apartment. Savannah's family was immediately notified. However, DNA testing took weeks before eventually determining that this was, in fact, Savannah and Ashton's baby girl.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So they took her baby. Yes. So William immediately starts denying to know anything. His girlfriend, Brooke, had told him she was pregnant months ago. This was their baby. But Brooke, well, she couldn't even keep her story straight. First, it was their baby. Then she changed her story, saying that their downstairs neighbor, Savannah actually made an agreement with her to give her the baby and she doesn't know where savannah went after that (laughs) yeah right yeah it's like yep she came up to your apartment to help you with a dress she had a baby she gave it to you and then she left no no (laughs) so three days after the baby was discovered inside the apartment of Brooke and william and eight days after savannah was reported missing the body of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind had been discovered by two kayakers. They had decided to kayak the Red River, which flowed down the border of North Dakota and Minnesota. They wanted to spend a peaceful day on the water, enjoying each other's company and enjoying a blissful day immersed in nature. And when they are on a part of the river just across the border of Fargo, North Dakota, In Moorhead, Minnesota, the pair spot something up ahead. Something was caught on a log, and one of them asks the other, What is that? It didn't look like it belonged there, and with that, they start to paddle towards the log. Discovering that they were right, it didn't belong there. It was a human body wrapped up in plastic and duct tape.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So, after the discovery of Savannah's body... This is when Brooke's tune changes. They had caught her with the baby and now Savannah was found dead. So she finally decides to tell them what had happened. Earlier that year, Brooke had told William that she was pregnant. She tells investigators he wanted a baby. I could tell he wanted me to be pregnant, so I just told him that I was. And then months passed, and Brooke obviously wasn't showing any signs of being pregnant because she wasn't. And William confronts her one day, telling her that he knew she was lying about the pregnancy and that she better produce a baby. He was looking forward to this. Brooke and William both had children from previous relationships, Brooke is reported to have as many as seven children before she met William, and William has two children, but neither of them had any contact or custody of any of these children. So, this was their chance to experience parenthood for themselves and with each other. William needed a baby, and Brooke couldn't get pregnant, no matter how hard she tried. William was in his early 30s and Brooke was in her late 30s. Why couldn't she get pregnant? People this age have babies all the time, and the rage filled her, leading her to come up with the horrific and evil plan to steal another woman's baby. She had noticed her downstairs neighbor Savannah for months now. She was always jealous of her as she watched her belly grow with a life inside. So, One day while William was at work, she lured Savannah into her apartment with a promise of $20 to help her hem a dress. Shortly after Savannah entered the apartment, Brooke starts to argue with her. You're being mean to my cats. You're mistreating them. Why would you do that? And Savannah is like completely caught off guard and looks at her like, excuse me, I'm not even looking at your cats. Mm -hmm. But with this, Brooke attacks Savannah, claiming that she hits her head on the sink in the bathroom and loses consciousness. It's then that Brooke grabs a short knife described as a carpenter's knife or a box cutter. And when she grabs it, she takes it and she slices it into Brooke's pregnant stomach, takes the baby out, cuts the umbilical cord. And while all of this is going on, Savannah is coming in and out of consciousness before ultimately blacking out again. Oh my gosh. It's so scary and so sad. Like just to get your baby stolen right out of your body. Yes. It's, I just can't even think about it. William returns home later that day. And when he sees a baby in Brooke's arms, she's like, Surprise, this is our baby. We're a little family now. And he smiles because this is exactly what he wanted. And he asks her if Savannah is dead before she tells him she isn't sure and she needs help. This is when William finds a rope inside their apartment and ties it around Savannah's neck. Making sure that she was in fact dead. And then they clean up. They used the water in the bathtub to wash down the blood, and they stuffed Savannah's body into a bathroom closet. They knew they didn't have much time. Savannah's mom had already come by the apartment looking for her and was visibly angry when she was told that Savannah already left. And by 5 p.m. that evening, the police were at the front door of Brooke and William's apartment, and they searched it, just like we talked about earlier. But they clearly did a careless job in their searching because we know they searched multiple times. They searched but somehow didn't find Savannah's body in the closet. They didn't notice the baby laying under a blanket next to William while they searched. Oh my goodness. What kind of search even was this?
1: I know. Do they not look in closets?
0: No. Like, you're going to search your apartment, but you're what, just peeking your head into each room? Like, looks good.
1: (laughs) Do you not see a baby squirming under a blanket? I mean, I guess it could have been sleeping.
0: But isn't that just crazy? Yeah. Like, they must not have been there long. So, and Noberta, Savannah's mom, remembers that the police weren't really caring very much in those first few days. She thought maybe they were just assuming that Savannah did, in fact, walk away or run away. And then after that first search, Brooke and William knew that they needed to get rid of Savannah's body if the police were going to keep coming by. So they cleared out the inside of a dresser where they put Savannah's body. She remained in this dresser when the police searched the apartment again on August 20th. And then the next day, the couple carried the dresser down the stairs of the apartment and into their truck before they drove her body to the river on August 21st, where they discarded her and left her in the water.
1: I know we always say this, but how can people do that?
0: I know. I, I do not know. <laughs> I will never understand the brain of a murderer. No, I... Like, what's going on up there, buddies? Like, how do,
1: how do you not feel wrong about that?
0: I'm, I'm glad I don't understand what goes on in their brain, but it's weird.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: So, the autopsy did determine that the cause of death was homicidal violence, but it wasn't determined whether it was blood loss or strangulation that had killed her. It is disputed whether it was Brooke or William that did strangle Savannah. But ultimately, Brooke testified in court that although William did not know about her plan, he did help her strangle Savannah and dispose of the body. Less than a year after the disappearance and murder of Savannah, on February 2, 2018, Brooke Cruz was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She was sentenced to extra years for the kidnapping charge and a charge with lying to the police. William Hone was charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping and lying to the police, which he pleaded guilty to on September 4, 2018 and was sentenced to life in prison for. He was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder, which he pleaded not guilty to and was tried for and actually acquitted of on September 28th, 2018. So a jury decided that he did not know about the murder beforehand, which I don't know if I fully believe, but... And then the North Dakota Supreme Court overturns his sentence. And in October of 2019, he was resentenced to only 20 years. And he will be eligible for parole when Savannah and Ashton's baby girl is still in high school. And I don't love that. No. I think he deserved his original sentence.
1: They always get off so easy.
0: Like, he's like, oh, I didn't know about it, um, but I helped cover the body. It's like, yeah, you did. You came home, there was a baby, and you're like, is she dead? (laughs) Like, yeah, you knew, and you should spend your life in prison. Not only did they kill somebody, but that is so selfish to me to just take a baby out of a mother's body Keep it for yourself and just discard of the mom.
1: Yeah, that is just wrong.
0: Yeah, it's really horrific. A few weeks after the DNA had been tested and the baby was determined to be Savannah and Ashton's, the baby was returned to the family. They named her Hazley Jo and she reminds them of Savannah every day. Ashton, Haisley's dad, has gotten full custody of her and let Savannah's parents see her whenever they want. Aw,
1: her name is cute.
0: And she's really cute. I'll post some pictures of her on our Instagram. She's the only piece of Savannah that the family has left. Ashton brought her at five months old to the sentencing where they listened to the victim impact statements and there’s a picture of him crying while he holds her, and it’s just like so sweet and so sad. She is a miracle baby for the entire family. The loss of Savannah was horrific, brutal, and an evil that they could have never predicted. But Hazley is the ray of light in this whole situation. The family is more than grateful that this little girl survived such a traumatizing birth and kidnapping. And as a result of this murder, Savannah's act was signed into law, like we talked about earlier. It was introduced in October of 2017, just months after Savannah's murder, and it was signed into law by President Trump on October 10, 2020. Savannah's act is a federal one. And it was a great step in the right direction to treat the cases of missing and murdered indigenous women with care. Another act that has helped propel everyone into having protocols in place that support these women is called Hannah's Act. And it was actually put into place in 2019, but it's on a state level, not a federal level. Hannah's Act was signed into law by Montana's governor at the time, Steve Bullock, and it is meant to provide funding for the State Department of Justice to hire a missing person specialist to help quickly coordinate searches for missing Montanans, especially missing Native Americans. Representative Ray Peppers carried this bill for the State Tribal Relations Committee. He represented the town of Lame Deer, which is the town that Hannah went missing out of. Ray Peppers also carried another bill that went hand-in-hand with Hannah's act, which was House Bill 54. It requires Montana law enforcement to accept missing persons reports without delay and compile a complete and accurate record of cases that are unsolved after 30 days. Which, I love both of these. First off, Hannah deserved a law named after her and we are about to tell you her story, And then second, the House Bill 54, like, heck yes, law enforcement has to take a missing person's report without delay, because we hear that all too often, that they make families wait 24 hours, 48 hours. I've even freaking heard of the police telling a family to wait 30 days. So both these acts go hand in hand and are a huge step in stepping up for these missing people. Hannah's act is named after Hannah Harris, and she was 21 years old when she left her home that was on the Northern Cheyenne American Indian Reservation in Montana on July 3rd, and this was back in 2013. Hannah had plans for the 4th of July holiday weekend, of course. The 4th of July is one of my favorite holidays, that and Halloween, There are so many fun things to do over the 4th of July to celebrate our country, fireworks, parades, food trucks, and I am obsessed with all of it. So I am not surprised that Hannah, like most of us, had plans to go watch the fireworks and have a few drinks with her friends. Hannah actually ended up seeing her cousin at the fireworks party. It was like this party on the reservation for the public. And there were not only fireworks, but there was music and dancing as well. And her cousin Marty that she grew up with describes her as going pretty hard that night. She was definitely using her night off from the baby to have fun. I mean, she barely ever got to go out since she became a mother 10 months earlier. And this was one of her first nights with a babysitter. Hannah was drinking a little more than usual, but Marty was happy that Hannah was getting to let loose for one night. She said, quote, it was Hannah, but 10 times that night, end quote. Around 11 p.m., Marty and her friends were gathering and starting to leave the party. And Marty didn't want Hannah to drive, so she says to Hannah, like, Hey, why don't you ride home with one of us and give me your keys? I don't really want you driving tonight. But Hannah wasn't giving in. They actually argued for more than 20 minutes over Hannah's keys. And ultimately, Marty gave up. All right, you do what you want. Hannah's Aunt Myra also saw her at the party and asked Hannah if she was all right. Hannah told her she was fine, and then she reached in and told her that she loved her, giving her a hug. So, Melinda Harris is Hannah's mom, and she works at a gas station that's on the reservation. And she had gone to work around 5 a.m. on July 4th, which is the morning after that July 3rd firework party. And as Melinda walks into work, a co-worker says to her, Your daughter's car is parked up by the creek. I thought that was kind of strange, and Melinda's heart starts to thump. That area was miles from Hannah's home. When they went to see what was up with the car, they noticed that the tire was flat. And as the day goes on, Hannah never returns home, and her family starts just to feel sick to their stomachs. Hannah not returning, along with the discovery of her abandoned car, was not sitting right. This wasn't like Hannah to go out and then just not return without saying anything. Hannah had a 10-month-old son at the time with her ex-boyfriend Skylar, and he lived a couple hours away in Billings, Montana, so Hannah wasn't just going to not come back and stop taking care of her baby. She needed to go pick him up. He needed her, and she loved him more than anything in this world. Hannah may have been mischievous growing up, but her family was shocked when she took on motherhood like a pro. So, knowing that Hannah would never abandon her baby, her family decides to drive to the police station to report her as a missing person on July 4th. And, although the whole town of Lame Deer was talking about Hannah's disappearance, the family got little interest from the officers. She'll come back. She's just out partying. Don't worry. So the next day, the family goes to the police station again. Hannah is still not home. We need to report our daughter missing. And they were told by the police, well, we don't really have any officers available, but you guys could probably search yourselves. And if she isn't found by Monday, then we'll step in at that point. Again, she's probably just partying. This was a holiday weekend, and the police force was stretched thin, but this is no excuse to just throw someone's life to the side and act like you're put out that someone went missing when you just happened to be busy. Hannah was a part of the Northern Cheyenne tribe in Montana, and unfortunately, indigenous women that have gone missing often have been pushed to the side just like this their stories remaining untold or not shared in the media. Hannah's family could feel the lack of care that the officers had for their missing daughter. They were flat out assuming that she was just partying, out with friends, and she would come home when she was done. But we know Hannah's car was found on the side of the road. Two flat tires and no Hannah in sight. Her family had asked, How could she be out partying if she doesn't even have her car? Why would she leave her car here on the side of the road and not get any help with fixing the tires? They knew without a doubt that there was something really bad about this situation. But Hannah's family was the only one raising these questions. The police force did not care. The media didn't pick up the story and Hannah's disappearance went on completely unnoticed for a few days. The only people that were noticing was people on the reservation that knew Hannah and the gossip that spread about what could have happened. Until July 8th, four days after she went missing, when Hannah's body was discovered by a search party near the rodeo grounds on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Foul play was immediately apparent in her death because her body was found with her clothes on partially removed. But, she was so badly decomposed that they were unable to determine if she had been sexually assaulted. In fact, a cause of death has never been determined in her case because of the decomposition that had occurred by the time the body was found. If only searches had started earlier... If only the police took Hannah's disappearance more seriously, then they may have been able to find her body before all that decomp.
1: I I don't necessarily think you would think that they're partying with their car (laughs) in a weird spot with a flat tire.
0: And that's what her family was saying. Like, no, she's not out partying. We found her car. Yeah. So... Hannah's family shouldn't have had to wait until they actually found her deceased body before the police would even take their case seriously. We all know those first hours and days in a missing persons investigation are the most critical. What happened here was not okay. Hannah's family deserved help from the start, from the moment they knew something was wrong. Senator Steve Daines wanted to bring awareness to the fact that oftentimes resources aren't put into finding Native women like Hannah, and he did this in 2018 by making May 5th National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women. Because of the delayed time in finding Hannah's body and the amount of decomposition that had already set in, what exactly happened to Hannah has never been determined. But what we do know is that eight months after Hannah's body was found, Garrett Wada and Eugenia Rowland were arrested for the murder of Hannah Harris. And we have their story, what they say happened to Hannah, which, like, a story from the killers you can almost always say is always at least a little bit unreliable so let's just say always take a murder story with a grain of salt. So Hannah was last captured by video surveillance at a convenience store with both Garrett and Eugenia on July 4th at 1 30 a.m where they bought drinks. After this they drove Hannah's car and you can see on the footage Hannah in the driver's seat and Eugenia in the passenger seat. Investigators determined that Garrett was in the backseat. Eugenia told her sister-in-law that the three of them had been drinking together that night before she passed out and that she had woken up in the early morning hours of July 4th to the sight of Garrett Wada raping Hannah Harris. Hannah was screaming out for help that she was being raped. When Eugenia saw this, she flew into a rage and she tried to stop what was going on, but she alleges that Garrett hit her for trying to stop the rape, and when he hit her, Eugenia decided instead she would just beat Hannah, and when she started to beat her, Garrett joined in, and this beating had resulted in Hannah's death. Both Garrett and Eugenia had actually talked to investigators before Hannah's body was found on July 8th. They said that they were partying with Hannah that night and drinking before ending up back at Garrett's aunt's trailer. Eugenia acted all concerned like, oh my gosh, I blacked out and I was super concerned for her when I saw Hannah's car parked nearby where this trailer is the next day. Like, Where did she go? I passed out before she left. But, by July 7th, things were weird, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs notified the FBI about the case. That following morning, on July 8th, right before Hannah's body was found, some investigators went to Garrett's aunt's trailer, where Hannah was last known to be. Here, they found shoes and a stash that Hannah was wearing that night underneath the trailer. Garrett and Eugenia decided they needed to get away for a bit after Hannah's body had been found. The police were narrowing in on them. So this is when they decided to go visit some of Garrett's family up at the Wind River Reservation over in Wyoming. Which, we talked about it earlier, this is like that movie, Wind River. It's based on that reservation and like we said, it is so good and it was inspired to be made to spotlight the concern around missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada and the United States. So if you haven't seen that movie, go watch it now. It is really, really well made.
1: But just beware it's creepy and there's creepy music the whole time.
0: It it is like scary, like really ominous and super sad.
1: It's an anxious, makes you an anxious wreck.
0: It, like, makes you not feel good the whole time. So, after this visit to Wyoming, Eugenia decides to contact the authorities and admit that Garrett admitted to moving Hannah's body. Eugenia Rowland was 42 years old when she pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. Garrett Wada was 35 years old when he pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact. Eugenia did not have a plea agreement, but Garrett did. So, Eugenia Rowland was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Eugenia had a rough childhood, but this is no excuse to take another's life. She was abandoned as a young child before being adopted, but her adoptive parents couldn't handle parenthood either, and soon after, they abandoned her too. She ended up becoming sexually active extremely early in her childhood due to this lack of supervision and parental care. And unfortunately, this trauma in her childhood would lead her to be in many abusive relationships and she ended up having 10 children. Two of her children died and this sent her into an even deeper downward spiral where she covered her pain with an alcohol addiction ultimately leading her to this fateful night of drinking and killing a woman who was being raped by her abusive partner. Multiple family members of Hannah gave heart-wrenching impact statements. Her mom and dad were both able to speak along with her sister and grandma. Her mom told Eugenia, quote, I will never forgive you and I don't want to hear your I'm sorry's, you threw away my daughter like a piece of trash. I will never forgive you for what you have done. You are a dangerous woman. End quote. And in Eugenia's statement, she wanted to apologize to the family, but, like they said, they didn't want to hear it and they walked out of the courtroom. Eugenia's defense attorney, Robert Keller Jr., asked for her sentence to be only 15 years because he didn't believe that she should get more than the maximum that Garrett was facing. Remember, Garrett got a plea deal and was pleading guilty only to accessory after the fact, which the maximum sentence for that is 15 years. As we know, Eugenia didn't get this. She received that 22 years, which is still less than I think it should have been. To me, when you take a life purposefully, you no longer should have the opportunity to ever walk free living yours again. Robert Keller Jr. did say at the trial, quote, Not to be a glib about it, but he's getting away with murder, end quote. And I do agree with that. Garrett forced himself onto Hannah and started to rape her, which ultimately led to her death. And when his partner, Eugenia, started to beat her, he didn't stop her. No, he further abused her and started to participate in the beating. Garrett Wada only received a 10-year sentence. Oh
1: my goodness.
0: Isn't that so low?
1: They didn't get him on rape?
0: I think they might have charged him with rape, too, but I don't know if when, if in his plea deal, he didn't have to plead guilty to that. But, yeah, he got 10 years for accessory after the fact because he helped dispose of the body.
1: Oh, that is so stupid.
0: And he has the audacity at his sentencing to act so careless about what he did he takes zero responsibility which pisses me off because when hannah's family reads their victim impact statements at his sentencing the only thing he would do was shake his head no refusing to accept any responsibility for their grief like he didn't participate in an active role of her death He like completely distanced himself from it and was like, nope, I didn't do anything until after. Oh
1: my gosh, yeah, right.
0: Isn't that so frustrating? 10 years?
1: Yeah, that seems like nothing.
0: So I feel that Hannah deserved more in her justice. She deserved to be cared about from the moment she was found to be missing. Her body should have been found much quicker. It's not like it was hidden. Her story should have flooded the media, and her killers absolutely should have received much harsher punishments. Thankfully, Hannah's death does not have to be in vain, and from it we have learned many lessons, bringing forth both Hannah's Act and House Bill 54 in Montana, along with the day now dedicated to missing and murdered Native women on May 5th. There are still many Indigenous women around the country whose cases remain underreported. Let's stand up and start talking about them, start sharing their stories, and let's make an impact and help lead to a brighter future for these communities. Between 2011 and September 2020, more than 710 Indigenous people were reported missing in Wyoming. And... 21% of all their homicide victims were determined to be indigenous people, even though they only make up 3% of the population. Deborah Ann Halland, who is the first indigenous cabinet secretary in the United States history, says, quote, women are disappearing and dying in Indian country. We must act, end quote. Native women on tribal lands have been reported murdered at more than 10 times the national average. And that's crazy, yet these cases are not getting as much attention, they're often ignored. One of the things I noticed that was hard while I was searching for these cases was that articles were hard to find and information on these people were few and far between. There are all these missing women, and when I say they are underreported, I mean, I had to be very specific in my searches to even find information about one case. When I searched missing Native women in Wyoming or in Idaho or Montana, there were tons of articles on how Gabby Petito's case has brought attention to missing Indigenous women There were tons of articles on how we need to stand up for women dying in Indian country and tons of articles about the work that people are doing to advocate for the missing and murdered indigenous women. But there were no articles about the actual women missing and murdered. No names popping up. No stories about these victims. We need to not just talk about what we should be doing. We have to actually share these stories. So, Again, like I said earlier, if you see a story or a missing persons flyer, share it and talk about it. I found a girl I want to highlight at the end of today's episode that is still missing and there isn't a lot of info about her disappearance or what happened to her. I will share her missing persons flyer and I encourage you to do the same. Kiana Klomp is 17 years old and she is a member of the tlingit tribe hopefully i'm saying that right it's t-l-i-n-g-i-t and she has been missing for a year and a half now she was last seen on march 22nd 2020 she has shoulder length black hair and both her ears and nose are pierced she was a resident of post falls idaho and she was last seen leaving a residence in that area Kiana is 5 foot 4 inches tall, and she weighed about 115 pounds when she went missing. She was born on February 19, 2003. Kiana is biracial, so she is a mix of American Indian and white. And her mother is Terry DeShane. She says that in the last year and a half, her daughter has been missing, and there has not been one article written about her. There's been no media attention at all. She describes her daughter to the Guardians' Hallie Golden as loving to skateboard and go shopping. And at the time that Kiana had disappeared, she had actually been a runaway and was staying with some friends. But the home she ended up at was with a man that Terry says is a sexual predator. And then this man disappears himself very shortly after Kiana goes missing. So although Terry put flyers up around town and continues to share her daughter's story on social media, she couldn't get her daughter's story to a larger audience. No one is picking it up. People weren't sharing it like crazy. Quote, all I got in my pocket is Facebook and just social media. That's all I got. I don't get any help from any other place. I begged. I just feel left out and unimportant. End quote.
1: Ah, oh, that's sad.
0: Like your daughter's gone and you feel like no one's helping.
1: hmm like no one cares.
0: Yeah. And I want to know more about Kiana. I want to know more about who she is, where she came from, and most importantly, what happened to her. But her family needs help in spreading her story for this to happen. And only we can do that by talking about her and putting pressure on those that may know something to come forward. To call in tips. To help fight for answers in Kiana's disappearance. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Kiana Jacqueline Klomp. You can call the Post Falls Police Department at 208 Seven seven three, three five one seven.
2: your kindness, listeners, I'm Charlie Waters, and I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser. Even though in the movies, they only show native warriors as boys. But in real life, there were many warrior women. The most famous warrior women, Buffalo, Calf, Rodan. She was a member of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. And she fought in the Battle of the Rosebud and in the Battle of Little Bighorn. You probably didn't learn about her in history class, but she is an incredible warrior woman. Bye-bye.
0: Have a good day. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. That helps us so much and it costs you zero dollars to support us. We would love it if you help us continue to make this podcast by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. This is literally the best thing you can do for us to help share our stories and to show people that our podcast is great, that we are putting in the work to bring you good content. If you have any case suggestions, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com I also want to do a segment where we share stories and questions and any craziness from our listeners. So if you have something that you want to share that you want featured on the podcast, please email us. You can remain anonymous or you can leave your name for a shout out. Follow us on social media for pictures and info on each case we cover. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime X Pod, True Crime, E-X-P-O-D. You can find us on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast, and you can find us on Twitter at True Crime underscore pod. This podcast is written, hosted, edited, researched, everything by me, Kayla Waters. It is co-hosted by my busy, busy mom, Alicia Jenkins. My cute daughter, Charlie Waters, who is also super busy, takes time to give us a little palate cleanser at the end of each episode. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Stick around to get organization info. So you can donate to MMIW USA, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, United States of America. Their number one mission is to bring their missing people home and help the families of the murdered cope and support them through the process of grief. They need your help to report information, advocate and spread the word. So call them at 503-891-0040. You can also visit www.nativewomenswilderness.org. They are a organization as well for murdered and missing indigenous women. They say our women and girls and two spirits are being taken from us in an alarming way. As of 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported more than 5,000 cases of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. You can go to their website to learn more. If you want to find more organizations that you can get involved with on this matter, go to www.indian-affairs.org.